We'll be looking at several things in Ephesians 2 this morning, but I want to begin by drawing your attention to one word in verse 11, and that's the word remember. Paul says, therefore, remember. In the book of Ephesians, Paul does something that he often does in his letters. He spends a lot of space unfolding for believers what exactly it is that God has done for them in Christ. Have you ever noticed how often Paul does that in his letters? You have it here in Ephesians 1 through 3. You have it in Colossians 1 through 3. You have it in Romans 1 through 11. You have it at the end of Titus 2 and on into Titus chapter 3. Over and over again, Paul saw the need to explain to people who were already Christians what exactly it meant to be a Christian and to explain to them exactly what happened in their conversion and to unfold for them all that God had done for them in Christ. Now, why did Paul so often take the time to do that? Well, I think there's two main reasons. First of all, Paul was often writing to new believers who needed to be instructed because new believers really have no idea what has happened to them when they become a Christian. They know something really big's happened. They know that they've been changed, they're different, but they can't even begin to fathom the height and the depth and the radicalness of the miracle that God has worked in their life when he saved them. And so they need to be told, they need to be instructed. And so Paul did that often in his letters. But secondly, Paul took the time to explain these things because believers who have been Christians for a time need to be reminded of what's happened to them because they so easily forget. And so here in Ephesians, after one and a half chapters, basically, of doing nothing but unfolding the riches of the gospel and unfolding all that God has done in Christ on behalf of his children, Paul comes then to chapter 2, verse 11, and he says, remember. Remember. Stop and remember. And this exhortation to remember is not limited to Paul. Think just of one other passage, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. You see, the psalmist here is exhorting himself to not forget any of the Lord's benefits. Why? Well, because that's exactly what believers have a tendency to do, to forget what God has done for them in Christ, to get caught up in the trials and the pressures and the failures of day-to-day living and to forget what God has already done for you in Christ. And if you want a good test for where you're at on this, ask yourself these questions. When was the last time that I simply paused in amazement at the fact that I'm a Christian? When was the last time you did that? That you simply stopped and said, "How I'm a Christian. How can that be? When was the last time that you marveled at the fact that you're a child of God? When was the last time? When was the last time that you spontaneously cried out, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? When was the last time? If it's been a while, then you need to remember That's what you need to do. You need to remember. And that's my burden for us here this morning, that we'd simply take a little time here to stop and to remember. And if you are a Christian here, you need to remember who and what you were before God saved you, and you need to remember who and what you are now as a child of God. 
You need to be reminded of how bad off you were when you were lost and how well off you now are that you're saved. To the degree that you're discouraged or lack joy here today, there's really one simple reason why. You've forgotten, and you need to remember. That's really the only reason. So what do you need to remember this morning? Well, three things from right here in Ephesians chapter 2. First of all, what you were before God saved you. That's the first thing. Remember what you were. Secondly, remember what you now are as a child of God. And then thirdly, remember what made the difference. What you are, what you, or I'm sorry, what you were, what you are, and what made the difference from here in Ephesians chapter 2. So that's what we'll look at here this morning. First of all, what were you prior to your conversion? Well, according to the scriptures, you were dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. could also be translated, you were dead because of your trespasses and sins or by reason of your trespasses and sins. But the point here is that you were dead. Not a little dead, not partly dead, not even mostly dead. You were dead, Paul says. As Spurgeon said, when Adam fell, he didn't just break his little finger, he broke his neck and plunged the entire race into ruin and death and misery. And that's the same thing that's true of us, beloved. You come into this world not with just your little finger broken, and you know you just need a little splint or a Band-Aid on that. You come into this world with a broken neck, you're dead spiritually, Paul says. Dead in trespasses and sins because the poison of sin has infected every part of your being. You may have been alive physically before you were converted, but you were dead spiritually, dead towards God, dead towards the Word of God, no interest in spiritual truth, no concern for your own soul. God spoke to you constantly through His creation, through your own conscience, but you were dead to His voice and refused to listen. Dead, and instead you suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. If you heard the gospel at all, it didn't make sense to you and held no attraction for you. As the song says, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. You know, what, what does this have to do with me, some Jewish guy dying 2,000 years ago? Who cares? What's that have to do with me? Caring not my Lord was crucified, the song says. You were spiritually dead, cold, and lifeless. As Paul says in verse 12, having no hope and without God, in the world, dead in trespasses and sins. And you need to feel the weight of that because you forget. You forget what it's like to be without God and without hope in the world. You forget. And you need to remember that, what that was like. But not only were you dead, secondly, you were disobedient. Again, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Even though you were dead spiritually, you were still able to walk, but your walk was according to the course of this world. You walked with the crowd, but not with God. You thought you were your own person doing your own thing, but in reality you were a pawn of the devil himself, a pawn of the prince of the power of the air, Paul says. 
walking according to his desires. Rather than seek God, all of your time and energy was spent on the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And as a result, your life was characterized by disobedience. That's a, that was the characteristic of your life, disobedience. Disobedient to your parents. Disobedient to the authorities that were placed over you. Disobedient to your own conscience. You couldn't even live up to your own standard of right and wrong because you would knowingly and willingly do things that your own conscience told you not to do. You couldn't even live up to that. You were dead and you were disobedient. Thirdly, because of your disobedience, you were distant. You were distant. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from... Now listen to the language here. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Separate, excluded, strangers, far off. Far off from God separate from God's people, excluded from God's work in the world. Your disobedience drove you away from him and made you a stranger to him. And we see this illustrated by the prodigal son. You know, when the prodigal son rebelled against his father, he didn't just walk out the back door and build a tent in the backyard and live there. No, what did he do? He went off on a journey, it says, into a distant country. He got as far away from his father as he possibly could. He wanted to put as much distance between himself and his father as he could. He went on a journey into a distant country, and so did you. But the distance, you see, was not simply a matter of you wanting to get away from God. The distance was also a result of God being separated from you because of your sins. Isaiah 59, but your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation. There's, again, that idea of Far off, separate, distant. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So you were also distant because God had separated himself from you because of your sins. You separated from him, didn't want anything to do with him. He separated from you because of your iniquities, because of your sins. And that leads right into the last one here. So what were you before God saved you? You were dead, you were disobedient, you were distant, and then lastly, you were condemned. Condemned under, under the wrath of God. Verse 3, Paul says again, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest were by nature children of wrath. Just by doing what came naturally to you. See, Paul says we were this by nature. Just doing what came naturally. You know, indulging the desires of the flesh. Self-centeredness. Doing my own thing. Getting what I want. Looking out for number one. You know, just by doing what came naturally. A child of wrath. Why? Because a perfectly holy pure and righteous God cannot tolerate sin. Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. Think of that. Every day prior to your conversion, God was angry with you. 
every day. You woke up under his wrath. You went about your day under his wrath. And you went to sleep at night under his wrath. At any moment prior to your conversion, at any moment, God would have been perfectly justified in stopping your breath and sending you straight to hell. And you wouldn't have been able to say a single thing in your own defense. Not one word in your own defense. Because that would have been exactly what you had deserved. Justice. Wonder of wonders, God didn't do that. But you see, you need to remember that he could have. We need to remember that, that he could have done that. And he would have been perfectly right to do so. So again, I say remember that, beloved. Remember what you were this morning. But secondly, now the light begins to dawn. Remember what you now are in Christ. So remember what you were, yes, but also remember this morning what you now are in Christ. And the contrasts here are unspeakably glorious. What are you now as a child of God? First of all, you are alive. You are alive. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, at the very time, at the very point, right in the place when you were at your most helpless and your most hopeless, dead in trespasses and sins, right when you were just laying there dead at that very point, most helpless and most hopeless, right there, God made you alive together with Christ. Just as no man can raise himself from the dead physically, no man can raise himself from the dead spiritually. You see, there must be, some, there must be power, there must be life, there must be an influx of something from the outside, an influx of life and power from the outside, coming in to the spiritually dead sinner in order for the dry bones to live. And that influx comes from God who sovereignly causes the wind of his spirit to blow into the lives of his chosen people. John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And you see the same picture with Ezekiel, don't you, in the valley of dry bones. You know, those bones are not going to move. <laughs> they're just not. They're, they're just bones, you see. But when the wind of God's spirit blows, even those dry bones come alive. And that has to happen in the life of every person who's converted. You've been made alive, Paul says. And the life that you now have is not a puny life, it's not a partial life, and it's not a temporary life. But it's the very life of God himself dwelling within you. Before, you were alive to sin and dead to God. Now, you are dead to sin and alive to God forever. You are alive. And what else? Secondly, you're raised and seated. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. So you are raised and seated. Not only have you been made alive together with Christ, but you've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly spiritual realm. Paul says in Ephesians 1.20 that Jesus was raised up and seated at God's right hand, and you have been raised up and seated right there with him, right there at God's right hand. That's what Paul's saying here. As one spirit with him, as a vine in the divine branch, you partake of the very position, authority, and life of the risen Son of God. You see, it's one thing for a king to personally invite you into his court, even though that in itself is a tremendous honor, you know, to receive a personal invitation from a king to come into his court. It's pretty incredible. It's never happened to me. <laughs> but it's another thing altogether for that king to set you down in the chair next to him, to put a crown on your head and a scepter in your hand, and to invite you to share in his rule over the kingdom. You see, that's something else entirely. But that's exactly what God has done for every Christian in Christ. Raised them up, seated them with Christ so that they partake, they participate, they share in His power, His rule, His authority, His kingdom. You're alive, you're raised and seated, and thirdly, you are near. You're near. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you see the contrast there. Far off, brought near. The distance, the separation between you and God hasn't just been partially erased. You know, it's not like when you make a pencil mark and you erase it. Even with the best eraser a lot of times, you can still see a little bit of that pencil mark. That's not the way it is, beloved, with that distance, that separation between you and God. It hasn't just been partially erased. That separation, that distance, has been totally obliterated. How can that be? How can the separation caused by sin suddenly be gone? Well, this verse gives us the answer. It says, You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. The distance and the separation caused by sin is gone because the sin which caused the separation is gone. It's been dealt with once for all by the death of Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 3. This is so perfect here. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You see that? He died for sins once for all. Why? So that he could just leave us off in that distant country? No, so that he could bring us to God. You've been brought near, you see. The separation, the distance totally obliterated. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. How near have you been brought? Well, you've been brought so near that you are now a member of God's very household. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's what you were. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So you live in God's house now. That's pretty near. But in reality, you're even more near than that. You're not just a member of God's household. You are the very place where God himself dwells. Verse 22. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So not only are you a member of God's household, but you yourself are the very place where God dwells. 
the body of each individual Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and each body of believers corporately, the church corporately, each body of believers corporately is a temple of the living God. You have both in the New Testament. Each individual Christian is a temple of the living God, and each body of believers corporately is a temple of the living God, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And I say you can't get any more near than that. You can't get any more near than being a dwelling of God. Having God himself make his dwelling with you, in you. You're near. Lastly, you are assured. Assured. Alive, raised and seated, near. And fourthly, you are assured of a glorious future. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's the purpose, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purposes for making us alive and for raising us up with Christ have only just begun to be realized. They're just just the very beginnings of what it means to be alive as a Christian. Just begun to be realized. But one such purpose that even eternity will not exhaust, is given right here by Paul in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I ask you, Christian, why did God save you? Well, you could answer that question in a lot of ways, but one particularly wonderful answer is found right here. And that is that God saved you so that he could spend all of eternity revealing more and more of the riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ. You know, we think, and we have, we've received so much grace and kindness. Every Christian here, so much grace and kindness. But beloved, as the song says, you ain't seen nothing yet. We've just, just the very beginnings of this grace and kindness is all that we've seen. One pastor said it like this, Throughout endless ages, the universe will be in perpetual astonishment because sinners are with God in his home. All that God is and has done will be admired in that everlasting glory, but shining brighter than all will be his abounding grace seen in the kindness he has shown through Christ towards sinners. And God will spend all of eternity revealing more and more of that grace and kindness to you. It's like a father holding this blazing jewel in his hand. And he wants to show his child, but he just reveals just a little bit at a time of this jewel. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Only the beauty of this jewel will never be fully revealed, even in eternity. But see, each new glimpse of that blazing jewel of God's grace and kindness will fill your soul with an ecstasy that you never would have thought possible. Each little glimpse. See, it's new all the time. All eternity. Each little glimpse. So I say again, you are assured of a glorious future this morning. So remember. Remember that. Remember what you were but remember also what you now are in Christ. And then thirdly, remember what made the difference. 
The contrasts between what you were and what you now are are unspeakably great. Hopefully you've seen some of that. The question is what made the difference? What caused the change? And the first what is not a what at all, but a who, and that's God. God himself made the difference. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So how did you go from what you were to what you are? Well, one way to answer that is just to say God, but God. That's how you went from what you were to what you are. And how could it be any other way? You, as we saw, were dead, disobedient, distant, and condemned. If there, if there was any change that was going to be made, it had to come from God's side. You see that? You had no hope. You were dead. If any change was going to happen, it had to be initiated from God's side. A.W. Tozer said, God is always previous. And that's true in everything in the Christian life. God's always previous from the beginning to the end. But God, Paul says, being rich in mercy, but God, he made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you with Christ. He brought you near. But not only was God at work at the beginning of your salvation, he continues to work in you, Paul says in Philippians 2, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then your confidence for the future is that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see that? From the beginning to the middle to the end, God is sovereign over your salvation. He's always previous. For salvation is of the Lord. So what made the difference between what you were and what you now are? Well, first of all, God made the difference. God made the difference. Secondly, grace made the difference. Grace. Verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. By grace you have been saved, not of works. It's like this, this refrain that Paul just keeps saying. By grace, by grace, by grace, not of works, not of works, not of works. By grace you have been saved. You are not saved on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what God has done. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Now get this, this will help you. There was nothing in you or done by you that moved God to save you. There was, when you were lost, beloved, there was nothing in you and there was nothing that you did that was done by you that moved God to save you. Isn't that true? What, what good thing did you have in you that God saw that moved him to, to reach out to you in salvation? What did you have? You were dead, disobedient, condemned, and so on. There was nothing in you that moved him to save you. God was moved solely by what was in himself. And that, that to me, that helps. Because there's days when all you can say is, Lord, I don't know what's going on here, but I know you started this thing. <laughs> you initiated it. Not my idea. 
And see, because there was nothing good in you to start with that moved God to save you, you don't have to try to produce anything good now for God to keep you around. Because it was never on the basis of what you were or what you did or what you can do. Titus 3 says it this way. He, that is God, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. See, he's not just talking about God didn't save you on the basis of your of, you know, bad things that you did. Well, that's obvious. He didn't even save you on the basis of supposed righteousness or good things that you did. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So grace made the difference. Thirdly, gift made the difference. Gift. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Gift. The New Testament often speaks of our salvation in terms of the receiving of gifts from God, and this is—it's fruitful just to even think about this aspect of this. There's so many different things that the New Testament talks about as being gifts that God gives to His children, and then we receive it. Living water, John four, righteousness, justification, the Holy Spirit, eternal life, and even Christ Himself. God so loved the world that He gave. It's a gift, you see. Christ himself, all of those things are spoken of as gifts that are given by God and received by the believer. Here in Ephesians 2, though, Paul sums up our entire salvation as being the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this gift of God even includes the very faith by which we receive all of God's other gifts to us. One writer said it this way, Salvation and faith are not two separate things. The act of trusting Christ is part of salvation. Salvation in its totality is God's gift of grace to us. It follows that faith is his gift. How is it that you could not believe, before you were a Christian, how is it that you could not believe, but you do now? You neglected him for years and years, but then you came to trust him. What made the difference? Did you suddenly improve? You know, I got a little smarter all of a sudden. I started to seek God a little bit more. Yeah, but Romans says no man seeks God. Why did you seek God and somebody else didn't? Did you suddenly improve? No. God was gracious to you. He gave salvation to you. It was sheer grace that brought you to believe and receive. So what made the difference between what you were and what you now are? God, grace, and gift made the difference. And then lastly, great love made the difference. Great love. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because 
of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Great love made the difference. With the emphasis on the great. Great love. And I saved this one for last because it's really the foundation of the other three. How so? Well, think of it like this. We said earlier that God made the difference, but what was it in God that moved him to save you? Well, Paul says it right here. Great love. It was his great love. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, right at that very point when you were the most dead, love. Yes, he's rich in mercy, but he's rich in mercy because of his great love. You see that? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. His mercy flows out of his love. It's his great love that supports and motivates and directs his mercy. We also said earlier that grace made the difference, but what motivated him to extend grace to you rather than the justice that you deserved? Great love. We then said that gift made the difference, but what moved God to give such gifts to you as you now possess in Christ? Great love. And you see, I'm emphasizing this because we can get the impression, and it's half right, but we can get the impression that everything that God does, he does for his own glory. And that's true. That's true. That's biblical truth. But you see, the, the idea that we get is that God has this, this glory machine. And everything that he's doing, he's checking to see that little needle rise on the machine to make sure how much more glory am I getting now from this? How much more glory am I getting now from this? And beloved, if that's the idea you have when you hear of God doing everything for his glory, it's wrong. It's wrong. Yes, God does everything that he does for his own glory, but he does it because he is love. God is love. And those two, they're not opposed to each other. They're both true. They're both true. You have, to, you have to hold on to both, emphasize both. But that's what Paul's emphasizing here. Back in chapter 1, you remember, he said over and over again that God did this to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And so he has both too. Praise of his glory, chapter 1, but he also has love. Chapter 1, chapter 2 of Ephesians. Great love. In love he chose and predestined you. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. In love he sent his son to die for you. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. So, love before time, to choose you, to predestine you, to adoption. Love in time, to send the son to die for you. And in love, he will keep you all the way to the end. Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see, that's a good test there for how you understand the love of God. Because if your idea of the love of God is this is just some weak, paltry thing, you know, God, God loves everybody. If that's your concept of the love of God, then you, you will get no help from that passage in Romans 8, you see. His love is special. Yes, he loves everybody, but he loves his church with a special love. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you love everybody here? Well, I hope so, but I hope you love your wife in a special way, in a way you don't love anybody else. You see, that's the idea. God's love for his people is strong. It has roots. And nothing can separate you from it. Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from it. And that's the place you need to get to. That my, my understanding of the love of God is so strong that I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from it. That will bring you through trials and tribulations and hurts of this life. So, beloved, what made the difference in your life? Yes, it was grace. Yes, it was gift. But in all and through all, it was God's great love. Remember that this morning. So, three things. Remember what you were. Remember what you now are in Christ. And remember who and what made the difference. Remember. Well, amen.